SCP Confinement, the hit YouTube series by Lord Bung, is coming to the printed page. Confinement follows Connor, a man with the anomalous ability to respawn, as he is used by the Foundation to explore and investigate dangerous SCPs. Adapted by Koshi J. Kage, artist for the SCP Daybreak graphic novel. Storyboard reviewed by Phantom, creator of the Whore of Blood canon, and published by Smooth Cadence Productions. Confinement returns to the community with no drama, no self-inserts, and no bung. Confinement Comics, Issue 1, only on Kickstarter. I'm Kelsey. I'm Cassie. And I'm Nolan from SCP Weekly. We bring you news from on-site and off-site. And we share your love for the creative community that surrounds the SCP Wiki. Join us on Tuesdays for new episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, or on YouTube at SCP Weekly. The file you are about to hear has been thoroughly scrutinized by the Ethics Committee and approved by the O5 Council for release to trusted associates of the Foundation. This is SCP Unredacted. Foundation Research Site 29, Northwest Oman. Sunday, 25 December, 1988. 0300 hours local. The helicopter touched down at the edge of the base camp for Research Site 29. It wasn't much to look at, just a standard perimeter fence, a few large tents, and a prefabricated watchtower with a searchlight and heavy machine gun. Razor wire and a minefield 50 meters deep had been deployed around the perimeter. These security measures would be improved as the site was developed further. According to the file, the site had only been constructed a few months before, after SCP-557 had been discovered by an investigation into a missing geological survey team. Harper stepped off the helicopter and was met by two men. One was a short man with glasses, dressed in khakis and clutching a Stetson to his head. The other was an enormous, barrel-chested Arab wearing an impressive black beard and desert camouflage. You must be the VIP I was told to expect, shouted the shorter man, an American based on his accent. Dr. Nick Ford, Site Director. This is Colonel Ali Alashem, Site Security Chief. Tim Harper, Foundation Counterintelligence, yelled Harper. He followed the two men into the nearby command tent as the helicopter shut down. The tent was mostly empty, unsurprising given the hour. A radio operator sat in the corner reading a book. Lieutenant, go get a cup of coffee, boomed Elishem in a deep resonant baritone. The tech jumped to his feet and scurried out. Rounding on Harper, the colonel asked ominously, Is there a problem with my security? Now, colonel, objected Dr. Ford. That's no way to welcome our guest. I'm sure that's not why. The hell it's not, bellowed Elishem. It's quite all right, Harper said quietly. I'm not aware of any inadequacies in your security measures, nor am I aware of any problems with your staff. The giant Arab deflated, looking slightly relieved. Dr. Ford asked, So Agent Harper, what does bring you out to research Site 29 in the middle of the night? Just Mr. Harper corrected gently. I'm not an agent. I'm here because I have a reason to believe a person of interest is intending to use SCP-557-1 in a plot against the Foundation. Ford and Elishem shared a worried look. 
Dash one isn't contained, Ford said. We aren't even sure what it is. Wasn't that in the file? LSM asked. I read both the files on SCP-557 and Research Site-29 on my flight, Harper explained. But they both only had preliminary findings. I'm going to guess they haven't been updated yet, since the site's so new. Ford nodded. That makes sense, I suppose. I should go ahead and give you the nickel tour. He and Harper left the command tent and strode across the compound. At the center, there was a stone structure maybe 10 meters in height. They entered through a rough hole in the side, perhaps two meters tall. The room was an ancient library. Dusty shelves lining the walls held rolls of papyrus. A table had been set up in the middle of the room, where researchers could examine and translate the scrolls and other artifacts. This is level one, explained Ford. There are five underground levels total, which is unusual for structures of this design. The structure itself is an Amman-Nar era tomb, which we think was built somewhere in the 24th century BC. We've not had a chance to do a thorough sweep of the surrounding countryside yet, so there may be more ruins out there. Historically, there was a trade route through this area and a now lost city named Ubar or Arem, depending on the language. The desert eventually swallowed both the city and the trade route. Now the scrolls we found here on level one are written in a number of ancient languages. So far, we've identified Greek, Old Egyptian, Sumerian, and Akkadian. We've only begun translating. Anything about Dash One? asked Harper. Maybe. We're still working on translating. We've pulled all the records we can identify that we think might refer to Dash One and are prioritizing those, Ford replied, gesturing to the several dozen scrolls littering the work table. He searched for a second, found a specific sheet of modern loose-leaf paper, and handed it over. This is the translation of the only document in here written in Greek. Radiocarbon dating indicates it was the most recent addition to the library, from around 300 AD. I will write in Greek, so that any learned man who finds this place will understand. I am the last of the keepers, and I will be dead soon. The sands are taking this place, and perhaps it is for the best. The prisoner must not escape, and the gateway to the dark must never be opened. I do not think the gate can be moved, but who knows of the prisoner? Not even the gods could kill it, and it was only with their help that he was secured. Without the rituals, I do not know. Secure the door the best you can, and never move the stone." That's charming, Harper remarked after finishing the note. Yep, Ford agreed. We don't know if that's talking about Dash 1, but it could be. Dash 1 wasn't the only thing held here. He paused. Anyway, in the several rooms on level 1, there are living quarters and bronze and Iron Age weaponry for a relatively large contingent of individuals, possibly the keepers mentioned in the note. We only found two skeletons on this level, so we think the facility was abandoned over time. Ford led Harper down a flight of stone stairs a long corridor with small stone cells stretched into the distance. This is level two. According to the records, levels two and three were a prison for heretics and sorcerers. We didn't find any evidence of the cells being occupied. They seemed to have not been used for perhaps a thousand years before the structure was abandoned. Any idea who these heretics and sorcerers were? Asked Harper. None whatsoever, Ford replied, as the two men descended to level four. We don't even know who the keepers were. Level 4 looked similar to levels 2 and 3, except there was more evidence of the Foundation's archaeological team 
This is level four, described by the records as a place for the abnormal. This appears to have been used up through the facility's abandonment, Ford explained. What sort of abnormal, Harper inquired. Well, we found a variety of skeletons in the cells here, which match several known SCPs. Dr. Bala has positively matched remains to what looks like SCP-439, SCP-610, and a couple of beasties that crawled out of SCP-354. Oh, don't worry. All the remains are completely inert, Ford said, seeing the mixture of concern and horror on Harper's face. There are also a number of skeletons unlike anything my team has seen before. From what we can tell, each cell was custom fortified for its occupant, unlike the cells in the upper levels. Sounds like someone doing our job, Harper remarked. Ford nodded. Well, in general, societies have had ways of dealing with the supernatural. Today, we have the foundation in the GOC containing and destroying things, respectively. In the Middle Ages, the church, both Catholic and Orthodox, worked pretty hard to either harness those objects that they could explain in ways to fit their theological beliefs or to destroy those which didn't. This structure is just an ancient site for some now long forgotten analog to the foundation. You said there were five levels, Harper said. Yes, Ford confirmed. He handled Harper a flashlight and hard hat. Be careful when we're down there. There are a lot of traps and deadfalls. We think we've located and sprung or cleared them all, but I've lost four D-class, two researchers, and a security guard, all since we initially thought we'd cleared them. Like something out of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Harper remarked, dryly. Worse, Ford warned. Not only are these real and not movie magic, many of them are far more sophisticated than I've seen in any other tombs. Do not touch anything. Spots that are confirmed as safe to step have been marked in white tape. Red tape indicates spots you should not step. White good, red bad, Harper repeated. Understood. The two men walked down the stairs. Level 5 appeared to be a single empty hallway, perhaps 50 meters long. At regular intervals, the researcher's staff had positioned battery-powered lanterns. The floor and wall were dotted with red and white tape. Here and there, deep pits in the floor dropped out of sight, invisible to even the most attentive observer, if not for the red warning tape. Slowly and cautiously, Ford and Harper crept forward. After an eternity, they reached the end of the corridor. A giant door lay in pieces across the end of the hallway apparently torn down and smashed from the inside. This is the entrance to room 501, Ford explained. The door was like this when we arrived. It's constructed of a variety of metal alloys, whose formula I won't bore you with, but the metallurgy necessary to make them is something that shouldn't have been possible until the middle 20th century. BC? Harper asked. No, the middle 20th century AD, Ford said. One of the key parts of the primary alloy was depleted uranium. And yet this door appears to be as old as the structure itself. We have no idea how it was made 44 centuries before it ordinarily could have been. In any case, our best estimates suggest the door wasn't broken until sometime in the last 10 years or so. What we've designated as Dash 1 got out. That can't be good, Harper said. It gets better, Ford said. That door is, or was, three cubits thick. Sorry, about a meter and a half ancient Egyptian measurement. Anyways, Dr. Morales analyzed the fracture pattern. This thing was broken in just one physical blow. There aren't many things that can exert that sort of physical force even today. Colonel Elishem has a demolition tech who estimates he'd have trouble rigging a charge to destroy the door, 
that wouldn't rebound the shockwave into the chamber and kill anything inside. Ford ushered the counterintelligence officer inside. Room 501 was vast, easily 20 meters on a side and over 5 meters high. The center of the room's floor was covered by a large granite slab, covered in runes Harper didn't recognize. A smaller stone block stood in the room. Metal chains hung broken from the smaller stone. Dash 1 was imprisoned here, chained to this stone. The chains are the same material as the door. Harper let out a low whistle. Whatever Dash 1 was, it had been both big and incredibly powerful. So we have no idea what it was? Most of the records haven't been translated yet, Ford replied. What we've found so far, including on the walls of room 501 itself, refer to Dash 1 as simply the prisoner. There is one exception. A single reference in Egyptian refers to it as the bastard son of Apep. Apep, Harper asked. Apep, or Apophis, as he was referred to by the Greeks, was the Egyptian deification of darkness and chaos, Ford explained. He was the personification of all that was evil, seen as a giant serpent or dragon. He wasn't so much worshipped as worshipped against. The ancient Egyptians believed that every night the sun god Ra would fight Apep, and if Ra ever lost, the sun would fail to rise again. So Dash One is the bastard son of this guy? Harper asked. We don't know, but that's what the one record we've found with any sort of elaboration suggests, Ford responded. Colonel Elishem is standing orders to locate and secure Dash 1 and to assume it to be Keter until proven otherwise. No luck so far, and do you have information that someone has found Dash 1? If that's correct, that's very troubling. Harper nodded, thinking, very troubling indeed. Foundation Command 02, Washington, D.C. Saturday, 24 December, 1988. 2200 hours local. Muir and Monica huddled around the secure speakerphone. Harper was on the line from the middle of nowhere in Oman, just finishing up his findings. So we're on the lookout for the bastard son of the ancient Egyptian god of chaos and darkness, Monica asked incredulously. Welcome to the Foundation, Muir sniped. The intern rolled her eyes at him. Harper ignored him. So I presume Seven told you about 1440? Have you turned anything up? Just to make sure we're on the same page, you had the file last updated, 15 June 1987, Muir asked. It never hurt to double check such things. There was a pause on the line. Then Harper said, that's correct. Monica read from some notes she had hastily scribbled on a legal pad earlier that evening. Mr. Harper, Site 11 doesn't have an exact fix on 1440's position, but they believe it might be somewhere near Mount Kazbek in the Caucasus Mountains in the Georgian Soviet Socialist Republic. Who? Local contact? Ground? The transmission from Harper asked, fading in and out of static. Say again, Tim, we missed that, Muir instructed. Said, is the... tacked on the ground? Came the reply. Monica looked at Muir. He wants to know the contact on the ground. Muir called into the telephone. Your contact is Captain Ivan Petrovich Gagarin. He'll meet you in Vladikovkas. Captain Gagarin in Vladikovkas crackled the phone, dissolving into static. Tim, Harper, Muir called, but the connection was dead. 
Foundation Research Site 29, Northwest Oman. Sunday, 25 December, 1988. 0700 hours local. Troy, Monica, yelled Harper into the secure radio set. The operator looked up apologetically. Sorry, sir, but we've lost the transmission. Looks like a sandstorm's on the way, said another technician on the other side of the command tent. Coming in from the west, ETA five minutes. Harper looked at LSM and Ford. How long do these things last? Hard to tell, could be hours, the Arab colonel replied. Harper hoisted his bag. Is the helo ready to go? Yes, but it'd be better to ride the storm out here, Ford cautioned. Harper started toward the tent's exit. Can't waste the time, he said over his shoulder as he stepped outside. To the east, a towering wall of sand rose kilometers high. Harper ran to the helicopter pad and gestured to the pilot to spin up the bird's engines. Within 60 seconds, they were airborne, racing back toward the city as the research site was engulfed by the sandstorm. Foundation Observation Post 3-02, Location Redacted Sunday, 25 December, 1988 0300 hours GMT A red light blinked on and off, annoyingly insistent among a sea of green and blue, denoting the status of the Foundation's worldwide assets. Probationary Agent Johnson sat up and called up the associated status indicator. He'd gotten a bottom-of-the-barrel assignment, shipped off to the middle of nowhere, straight out of training, only arriving the day before. Priority 2 alert. Automated notification. Research Site 29. Communications lost. Uh, Agent Marcus? We have a Priority 2. Research Site 29 just lost communications, Johnson said, worried. Calm down, Proby, his superior said. Satellite Emmett shows a sandstorm in that part of Oman. We've had problems every time one of those has come through since we set up shop a few months ago. Landline's still a work in progress. So you think the storm is disrupting the radio signal? Johnson asked. Third time this week, Marcus replied, sipping his coffee. The system log any danger or distress codes before the signal went out? Johnson took a moment to call up the relevant data. Uh, no, he said. Marcus smiled. Well then, Proby, it's probably nothing. Fire off a sit rep and form CL-287 to HQ inside 11. As per protocol, if the signal doesn't return after the storm clears, they'll send in an MTF. Johnson swallowed and nodded. If Agent Marcus wasn't too worried, he decided he shouldn't be either. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, join my Discord community, hire me on Fiverr, or help support me by becoming a patron for as little as $3 a month. Regardless of tier, all patrons get early access to every single episode. The links are in the description. I don't have the talent it takes to write a skip. All I do is read. Original authors make this podcast possible. So, credit to the original author. Their link's in the description. Show them some love as well. Consider becoming a member of the SCP Wiki, upvote their work, 
and maybe write a skip of your own. Maybe I'll read it here someday. You never know if you never try. The content of this podcast and content relating to the SCP Foundation, including the SCP Foundation logo, is licensed under Creative Commons Sharelight 3.0, and all concepts originate from scpwiki.com and its authors. This recording, being derived from this content, is hereby also released under Creative Commons Sharelight 3.0. I'm Grigori Carpin from Simply Creative People, the podcast where we discuss GOIs, canons, and stories from the SCP Wiki, and we try to recommend things for all fans of the Wiki, new and old. Look for us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Visit the show page at anchor.fm slash simply-creative-people, or follow us on Twitter at S-I-M-C-R-E-A-T. Hey there, this is DJ Skip, host of Foundation After Midnight Radio, coming to you from the only third shift broadcast for personnel, by personnel. Be sure to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts to not miss out on containment news and community announcements from within the Foundation.